Welcome to Cannabis Health Radio, a podcast where we share stories from people around the world who are using cannabis as medicine. The information is meant to raise awareness about the health benefits of cannabis, but should not be taken as medical advice. Now, here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to episode 247 of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. We first interviewed our next guest three years ago. As a matter of fact, Dave, you were episode 24. I remember that. We're now 247. Yeah, you remember it, <laughs> Ten right? Ten times later. Yeah. And thought it would be great to have him back because he's a medical doctor who educates other medical professionals about the use of cannabis for health purposes. And we're pleased to welcome back Dr. Dave Hepburn. Thank you. Thank Good you to see time. you again. Yeah, Good to great see to be you, Dave. Here. Yeah. Now, for those who haven't heard the first interview with us, Tell us about your journey from medical doctor to cannabis consultant. Yeah, so my uh, my particular one, I probably like one of the last people people would consider as being a medical uh, cannabis advocate because I I grew up very conservative. I I was I grew up Mormon and served a mission, raised my family then, and so never knew the taste of alcohol or drug, you know, cannabis. I could remember smelling it once as a teenager. That was about as close as I ever got to it. So. In doing so, you grow up with ideas that are loosely formed and firmly held, and you begin to sort of develop a confirmation bias of how you believe, how you feel, what stories you adhere to in life. And, of course, I was that and was uh, very conservative. Friends said I made the, the Pope look like a hippie. And so this, was, this is where I came from. This is sort of where I was as a physician. So I was a conservative person in a conservative city practicing in a conservative profession, which medicine is. And, uh, but during the course of that, I, um, if I give myself any credit is the fact that I, I, there was a phone call one day and uh, little did I realize that by within 20 minutes of answering that phone call, that the trajectory uh, of my life would change uh, dramatically and change permanently. Uh, the phone call came from a friend of mine who's a physician in Ontario. I'm in British Columbia. And he said that his mother who had cancer living in Victoria, uh, the only thing that helped with her chemo-related side effects and her cancer-related pain was, in fact, her neighbor's brownies. And would I help her be um, not feeling like a criminal because she never jaywalked? And I argued with him. I debated with him the same arguments that physicians always use. I haven't seen the studies. I, I don't know about this. I don't know the pathways. I don't want to do the paperwork, all the usual arguments. But really, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I skew this whole this whole cannabis scene, um, and I want nothing to do with the whole thing. But he eventually did convince me to see his mother, so I did. And then I began to see and listen and hear from people who had no intention of secondary gain, no intention to divert. They truly were saying to me, Doctor, we want to get help. We don't want to get high. Mm-hmm. And the more I listened to that, um, the more I began to realize that, in fact, these people were legitimate and genuine, and we had been too dismissive of these genuine opinions of people who truly had uh, positive experiences with it. And so as I began to introduce it into the practice, I began to have a real sense of satisfaction as patients would come in. I could tell you story, story, of course, but come in and say, thank you for your courage and compassion. It has truly made a difference. And of course, that also meant I could take them off other medications in some cases for some of the more harmful things, including, of course, the opiates, some of the benzos, sleeping pills, and things like that. So it was, it was really a, a remarkable, for me, uh, shift. And, uh, but I'm so, so glad I made it. 
Dave, how has the attitude of the medical profession changed over the years towards cannabis? You know, education really is the answer to how many of the world's problems, right? I mean, if it's, and certainly as education continues here, we, uh, you see the, the, the penny drop, you see the tipping point happen. And physicians are more and more going from a place of completely saying no to a place where, well, you know what, I'm not opposed to it. Uh, and they're saying, go down and see so-and-so at the local clinic or dispensary, go try it, I'm not opposed to it. In fact, 46% of all oncologists in the United States now talk to their patients about cannabis in one, in one rule or another. Yeah. Good. So, uh, so there has been a tipping point, and this is what I enjoy doing is education, not just for physicians, but anywhere I'll speak in various conferences and, and to the lay public and to professionals. And, and, and uh, you know, there's, it's... it's um, uh, doctors like to hear from physicians. They like mm-hmm. to hear from other doctors, not vested interest necessarily, and they want to be able to uh, um, ask the questions. And there's not a question that they don't ask that I haven't asked myself. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah it's it's great to see, uh, not just in here in North America, but but globally. I've been down in Peru uh, speaking at the universities there. I'm going to New Zealand to speak at the inaugural conferences there. And I think it is, it's, uh, it is yeah, it's a very obvious tipping point happening as people release some of the stigma and realize that there is a role for cannabinoids in medical practice. What's the overall reaction generally from physicians when they first start talking about this with you or asking questions? And what are some of the questions they ask? The questions are asked, well, where's the research? Where's the studies? Yeah, and that's of course, the favorite one. Th- that's, that's number one. And it has to be because that's how physicians operate. Yeah. Um, and I always remind them that this is a botanical you know, when you have medicines that are created in the lab, they are a single molecule created for a single problem, a single receptor, a single pathway, with a single dose, with a single cost. And yet, this is a botanical. And CBD has over 75 different types of receptors that it interacts with, and THC has about 12. So we, we have this multifaceted, and you cannot really compare... Um, you can't hold it to the same standard that you hold a single molecule to that you hold a botanical. Because how, many, how often do people come in and say, you know, yeah, thank you for the, can- the cannabinoids. I mean, it really helped my, my knee pain. And by the way, I'm sleeping better or my bowels are better. Or I don't get migraines or my skin's cleared up. So there's all these other sort of things that you hear that are uh, basically byproducts of the fact that cannabinoids are not selective necessarily they act in different potencies with different uh different uh, receptors and so yeah mm-hmm. I, I i get into it with the physicians and they understand it they, they they realize that yeah that is really truly a unique scenario and of course they see patients who come in all the time and wink nod yeah doc is the one thing that works mm-hmm. what do you think the biggest fear is coming from physicians surrounding cannabis or treating patients with cannabis the fear of the fear of not knowing uh, the fear of also um, wanting to have to learn something that's a whole new system, the endocannabinoid mm-hmm. system. And I have to say that for most doctors, when they understand the endocannabinoid system, in fact, this is true of anybody, when people come up and say, you know, how can I learn more about cannabis? The first thing I say before you even worry about the plant, take 10 minutes and review the endocannabinoid system 101 on one of the many, many YouTube or or internet sort of accesses to this mm-hmm. and understand that we all have cannabis in our bloodstream and the whole purpose of cannabinoid medicine is to harness that endocannabinoid system. And that resonates with physicians. They understand that 
We do other things. We use dopamine in Parkinson's disease, and we have deficiencies in, in, uh, in serotonin in some depressions. We have deficiencies in acetylcholine in, in dementias. So that we're trying to harness the systems that exist, the pathways and systems. And it's no different with the ECS. So as physicians begin to learn about the ECS, they begin to realize that, yes, cannabinoids definitely play a role in how they can harness that. Do you talk to physicians who have no idea what the endocannabinoid system is? I still do. More and more is being taught in, in schools now mm-hmm. so that uh, my son's, uh, he's just graduated medical school in the States and yeah, he knew about it. He was taught about it. Um, and so, yeah, and it, is, it has been surprising to me how now doctors are talking about anandamide and 2-AG in different, uh, you know, the various uh, ligands, the natural endocannabinoids. So again, it is, it is science, it is medicine. And as physicians begin to realize that they didn't learn everything like I had to learn in medical school. We, we, there's more out there. And uh, I think it takes a sense of humility. So it all depends on the physician mm-hmm. and a sense of curiosity and a sense of appreciation for the science, which, is, which has been more and more exciting. So every year I go to what's called ICRS, which is the International Cannabis Research Society. Um, it's an annual conference. It's the 27th annual one this year held in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And for four days... Every 15 minutes, uh, there is a new present for eight hours a day. There is a new presentation from a lab or a university around the world about cannabis. And honestly, most of it is way over my head. It is like mm-hmm. lab rats talking, and I just sit there try to clinicalize things because this is just the science, which is really in depth. And when you think of some of the topics here, things like um, molecular and pharmacological evidence for the sodium-calcium exchange, uh, MNX1 as a mediator of CBD and KLS applied protection against paxlofaxel-induced toxicity in dorsal root ganglion cultures. Of course. You know, you know the common one there. Yeah. Ian, your eyes so are you, classy. <laughs> <laughs> a classic, yeah, exactly. So you understand why it's way over my head, too. And, and, but this is an example here. I just brought in this sort of uh, the symposium syllabus here. It's just it's one after the other of things that are just extremely scientific. But you walk away realizing that there is a massive amount of research being done, both preclinical, uh, clinical, of course, observational, tissue culture, animal translational. All this research is being done, and you're, you're mind-boggled. And these are remarkable um, uh, things to try and take now, and how do we clinicalize it? So there's really a division there. There's an there's a interesting mashup of, of endocannabinoid research and then cannabinoid research. So it all comes together, two different things. And so again, it all comes together. These conferences are mind boggling and uh, the science is really moving. When you talk about the science, sorry, sorry, Kurt, when you talk about the science, are we asking more of cannabis than we are other medications? Wow, that's a good question. And uh, I think, yeah, we, um, you know, cannabis works for some symptoms, for some diseases in some people. It is, and it's the old saying that when, you know, the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail and you think it's going to work for this, this, and this. And you develop these, these sort of attitude polarizations and confirmation biases and the ideas that this is, this is a panacea. It is not, mm-hmm. but it has to be, it is also a um, significant role in many conditions that is, uh, that is very uh, profound in some cases, very profound in, perfect example is Epidiolex, Epidiolex, and Sativex. So Epidiolex was a, was a big game changer in July of last year when the FDA in the United States 
where cannabis is illegal, approved an illegal drug, which was Epidiolex, and now it has been approved as a plant. It's not synthetic. It is from the plant. Oh, interesting. And, and it is being used, of course, for kids with seizures, okay. with very difficult to treat seizures, like mm-hmm. Gervais and Lennox Gestalt. So <clears throat> that was massive. That was a massive game changer as it realized that this is a better alternative for many children. Some who, I know one child, 200 seizures a day, took all the anticonvulsants and everything else, um, down to zero uh, with CBD. And I'm, I'm a skeptic. I really am. But you begin to see this. And, uh, of course, this convinced Sanjay Gupta, too. It was uh, simply that case of uh, Charlotte Figge in, in Denver. Mm-hmm. She, she began to delve into it as a result and realized that there was tremendous roles. And now the FDA has approved cannabis as an anti-seizure medication for children in the United States. Yay. And then we have people like Dr. Phil saying that marijuana uh, lowers your IQ and makes you violent. That's just in my case. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we had to chill him out before we came on. That's exactly. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's stuff like that. I mean, here's a, a, a mainstream yeah. doctor, yeah. medical professional, sure. I assume, saying some absolutely ridiculous statement about cannabis, which has, has no science behind it at all. No. Zero. No. But people believe it. I think yeah. one of the things I think it is detrimental towards the cannabis industry is the old, um, the, the Cheech and Chong pothead thing. Sure, yeah. I mean... Stigma. Stigma. Mm-hmm. Sure. And there is a difference between medical cannabis and wanting to get high, just as there is a difference between having a nice glass of wine and getting drunk. Mm-hmm. Most people don't want to get drunk, mm-hmm. uh, but some people want, take cannabis... Is that true, <laughs> well, right. I'm just going to sit here and be quiet. This is I early just, in the morning. I see nothing but bottles strewn <laughs> yeah. everywhere around us here. Yeah, exactly. And, and bongs and everything else. This is crazy. That, that's right. But that, I think that is detrimental to the cannabis industry. Yeah, of course. Uh, I, I, I do speak. One of the talks I've given is on stigma mm-hmm. and how counterproductive it is to for people to have to worship the Bob Marley culture in order to be able to get medicine. But... Uh, you know, Dr. Phil is not a medical doctor. No. Uh, and you have physicians like key opinion leaders in the States, like, um, as I say, Sanjay Gupta, who initially wrote an article in 2009, Why I Vote No on Medical Pot. Mm-hmm. Of course, now he's a strong, strong advocate and doubled down on the importance of how it plays a role for many, many conditions for many people. Mm-hmm. You've got Dr. Oz, who says it should be in every pharmacy in America. So for every, you know, somebody like Dr. Phil says he's not a, he's not a physician. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, what... What, but I think we don't sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater. We understand that there are certain areas and conditions where cannabis is not necessarily a good idea, and one of those is in youth. I am not an advocate of the use of cannabis in use, youth, unless it's a risk-benefit ratio scenario, because of the developing endocannabinoid system in the adolescent brain, which needs to neuromature and needs to have to get to a point where you're not taking plant cannabis and then, as a result, causing... Um, uh, downregulation of the individual's developing system. So there is a lot yet to be discovered there. But to say it makes you, you know, violent and everything, that's just, that's just a reefer madness. Dave, give us some of the myths and misconceptions that are very popular about cannabis. So those have changed. I mean, um, the myths of today are a lot different than myths of five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the myths include things like, I have to smoke to get medicine. No, you don't. You can take it in many delivery mechanisms, of course, ranging from oils to, to uh, suppositories, which 
not terribly popular at most parties, that sort of thing. So it's not divertible. Um, so that's a myth. The myth, then there's the CBD myth. And this, to me, the number one myth is this. C- CBD, oil, good, medical. Mm. THC, bad, recreational, smoke. That is a huge myth to me. Is people just have to quit sort of following the fads that CBD is medicine and THC is recreational. It is not. Corey's scrambling to grab her cell phone because oh, okay. <laughs> it's left a message. <laughs> Good. Way Good. to go, Yelland. <laughs> Nobody ever calls me on this. It must be the Pope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Say hi to him for me. <laughs> so, so that is the huge myth. This is a CBD myth that it is medicine and THC is not. Mm-hmm. Uh, THC, in fact, is a very important medicine, and I, uh, in fact, um, I had the good fortune to be down in um, in Peru after they've they uh, legalized and helped with the regulations because they were not going to use THC as part of that. And I had to point out many many hours and many many papers to show how THC is, in fact, the uh, the dominant THC medicine is, in fact, very good for many conditions where CBD does nothing. Uh, and so you have really now available three types of medicines. You have THC-dominant medicine, you have CBD-dominant medicine, and then you have hybrids of the both, and everything in between. So no matter what, where you go to source your medications, it's going to be one of those three categories. THC-dominant, CBD-dominant, and then, and then a hybrid uh, of the two. And everything, as they say, in between. Mm-hmm. Dosages and ratios and percentages and everything else. But, um, yeah, that's the, that is certainly... Very rewarding to see as Peru, the Minister of Health in July of last year, after many, many hours of discussing in, 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 uh, in a sort of congressional committees and in, uh, in um, uh, the review committees, uh, the regulatory committees, she stood up and said, we have decided to, because of all this information, that uh, you and, and Plena, Plena is a company I advise to, um, have made. Uh, we are going to drop all restrictions on THC and allow doctors to use it completely. Excellent. It was one of the greatest moments of, of my professional career to realize that the impact that uh, we mm-hmm. had made, Plena had made, with the Peruvian government had, in fact, um, virtually helped change the medical future of that country and has opened up the operation of THC for many conditions like you know, cancers yeah, and, and, and probably uh, saved a number of lives and is going to <clears throat> in the process. Absolutely. You know, because uh, that's just it. People, as they realize that they, they have this fear of THC and mm-hmm. it's been generated by the Americans, of course, which is why, you know, you can't even get CBD from Canada. Marijuana, you have to get it from hemp, hemp. Uh, because for fear, there might be some THC in there that might make someone happy. A little bit of it. This mm-hmm. is, this is absolute. Again, this is a, this is the tail end of that whole 70-year prohibition um, uh, era uh, propaganda. It still exists. It's still mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And so their fear, inherent fear of THC, has really robbed a lot of people of a lot of opportunities to, you know, people with migraines, people with nausea and vomiting, areas where THC is, is much better than CBD for, for uh, things like Tourette's and things like uh, um, uh, spasms, all sort, and some pains. So again, we're seeing more that this is uh, um, uh, people beginning to understand that THC is also a cannabinoid with tremendous medical properties. And as you pointed out, you know, you can have a glass of wine or get drunk. Mm-hmm. Certainly, toxicity is always in the dose. 
So, yep. you know, the more and more you take, yes, you're going to feel the, the psychotropic effects of, of the THC. But in lower doses and combined with CBD, which is a, actually modulates its ability in negative allosteric modulator, it actually, you can get all the benefits with it without having to get high. Well, I can't tell you how many people we've lost because they thought they needed CBD because there's so much false information out there. It's the biggest myth. You know, and it just drives me crazy. Yeah. And then the the other thing is you can get CBD virtually anywhere in the States. Now you can buy it at 7-Eleven and not all CBD is created equal. No. You know, and people think, well, though, I tried that CBD. It didn't work. I had a woman call me. It's got to be three months ago now, but any, at any rate, she had got CBD, obtained CBD for arthritis and she wasn't having any success at all with it she said if anything all it does is made her tired and I said you know are you in a state where you can get that tested she got it tested and it showed quote-unquote trace amounts of CBD Mm -hmm. all the rest was melatonin so it's like know your source know what's in there and you know if it says like 500 mils 500 mils of what what percent of CBD is in there exactly yeah. And that's one of the big problems is, is, is standardization of what is medicine. I mean, mm-hmm. by any medicine, you want to make sure you're getting it and you're not just getting filler. Yeah. Uh, that's true of anything. Yeah. So why should it be any different for cannabis, which I respect as medicine? Cannabinoids and I respect. So there needs to be some, some standardization to it. There needs to be some medical grade um, COA, you know, cert- certificate of analysis. There needs to be proper... Uh, approval and processing for it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Dave. Where do you see the industry uh, and and cannabis legalization within the next ten, fifteen, twenty years? Well, as mentioned, there's a global tipping point, and uh, thirty-two countries now have approved medical cannabis in one form or another. Only two have have approved recreational cannabis, of course. Although there's a couple right on the cusp um, of doing that. Uh, the um, uh, I see that as these countries, as they tip, as they as they begin to uh, understand more and more of the role of it, uh, I see the importance of the medicine being more available and and cost efficient. You know, I I don't belong to this company, but I advise to a company called Plena Global, which I will, I will say, and it's well worth it to check out the PlenaGlobal.com website. The this is a game changing company. Because they are, I, what I see here in North America is a lot of companies just trying to reproduce the same thing. They're trying to fight World War II with World War I ideas. And they're, re, you know, they're starting grow operations and LPs and stuff here in the frozen north. Where Planet Global has, in fact, been able to, um, its work in Peru and South America uh, has been to the point that, you know, what is it, an average cost of a gram here in North America is a buck 59 up to six bucks there they can do it for a 20th the cost of that they're doing it for like a 10 nine cents for that and there this is medical grade this is high quality um, tested cannabinoids in a natural environment where it grows uh, which is one of the things that they do and then they have all sorts of IT and stuff like that they're really, they're really very very good company I've seen come across many of these companies over the years, and this one I continue to advise to um, because I see them as being the, the progressive future. That's what the future is. They are the future of medical cannabis. Is providing affordable, medical-grade, consistent dosing uh, cannabinoids for patients around the world. And I see that as the, the breadbasket right there in Peru and places in South America and places like that. How different are the regulations in Peru as opposed to those in Canada? 
That's a great question. They, they, they're very different. Be, they started off very differently because of the fact they had a real fear of, obviously, narco-traficantes and, and diversion, and uh, they had that American-born fear of THC. That has, because of Planet Global, in fact, uh, changed. And um, so now I see them, but they're basically going through their sort of licensing organizations now. They're, they're very cautious and careful of doing it right. And they want to make sure that the medicine coming out of the Peruvian grows. And Peru is an amazing place. I mean, it's a, you know, it used to be that the Congo and the Amazon were together before the they South before Africa sort of divided from South America, and uh, they fed into each other. And the soil there is very organic. You know, you go down to the supermarket and everything says "product of Peru." Every every pomegranate and avocado because it's just such a rich soil there, and it's well, it's peri-equatorial, of course. Well, the grow of cannabis there is is in, like nothing I've ever seen anywhere in the world. It's just, uh, it's just, it's beautiful. It's, it's really, really remarkable. So, um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's Peru is trying to roll it out property properly. I'm going back down there next week again for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the one property that I go to is actually 160 hectares Wow! and all of Canada, mm-hmm. which produces cannabis for the whole world. All the grow opportunity in Canada is on 60 hectares. This is a 160 hectare farm that grew the herbs for whole foods, like the basil and rosemary mm-hmm. and thyme and stuff. And now they have plowed under mo- much of that in order to grow medical grade cannabis for, for planet. Now, are there certain strains that they tend to stick to growing? <clears throat> yeah, well, they will, their, their seed banks and will be. Um, uh, Determined by the Ministry of Seed Banks, it's just about ministry what they have. Ministry of Seed Banks, well, the, the production ministry. No, they just about have that. It's uh, they have ministries for everything, and uh, so. But it is it is regulated very mm-hmm. well. So again, because they want to be very cautious about the quality and about the potential for criminality. Although I have to tell you that my experiences there are and in Colombia is the fact that. You know, these narcotraficantes are more interested in gold than copper. In other words, they, they're dealing with cocaine. They're not really interested in going into some field somewhere and trying to harvest cannabis, uh, which is very onerous at um, the right time, and then taking it out and producing it and making oils out of it and stuff. They're not interested in doing that. Uh, they're very securious. They're, so it's it's not an issue. But they, that being said, the governments are very secure, really emphasizing security as well as, mm. uh, as high-quality grain. Are households limited to the amount of uh, cannabis they can grow? Where? In Peru. Um, they have not been allowed to grow at this time in, at households. Okay. Yeah, and I have to say that that's uh, that's not a problem with me because my concern is that a lot of people, like mothers, for example, who want to grow it for their children, and the mothers were the spearheading group down there. By the way, mm-hmm. they saw it working for their children with autism and seizures, and they put the pressure on the government, and the government eventually capitulated and and passed the law allowing it. So, and, and mothers have led the way in many areas, including Canada, and some of the aspects mm. of making oils available in Canada. Dave, women are much smarter than men. I've been told that by every woman I know. And I think that it's, uh, 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 but certainly you, you have the um, uh, abilities for these mothers who've, who want to access it, but you know, they grow it, then they start to have to extract it to make it into oils. Then they get into fires mm. in their place, yeah. and there's issues associated with that. And we really don't grow a lot of medicine ourselves. None of us grow out and grow, a, grow our proton pump inhibitors for our stomach in the backyard, sort of thing. <laughs> I think I think it has to. Uh, I think we have to um, be careful at allowing that to 
um, necessarily be something. Now, if it's something that people are taking for, you know, anxiety or calming or sleeping and they know the exact strain and they can do the exact right thing and they want to vaporize it as opposed to, and we never advocate smoking, of course, but vaporize or something, then, then so be it. Are they limited on what they can obtain, and do they have to go through a whole licensing thing, et cetera, to obtain it? In, in Peru, you mean? Yes, here? in Peru. Well, yeah. Peru, no. It, Peru, they're not allowed to, simply at this stage. Okay. Yeah, at this stage. So, you mean the, the, each family? Yeah. No. yeah like, like, okay, let's just say I have a, a child with epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Can I just go to the equivalent of a dispensary and pick that up? or Ph- do I... Pharmacy. Okay. Yeah, they have the so it has drugarias. So then it would be a prescription from the doctor to Yeah. Okay. Which is important when you're dealing with children. Well, you absolutely. want you want dosing, you want yeah. a right you want the right thing, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. right now that that's that that's happening there for sure. Yeah. Dave of the the states in the US mm-hmm. and uh, the jurisdictions around the world who mm-hmm. have legal cannabis. Right. Which have the most um, what area has the most advanced and the most I don't want to say advanced, but the, the most, um, oh, let's go with advanced because I can't think of anything. Well, there's been 11 states and two countries in the world that have legalized completely recreational cannabis use as well as medical cannabis use. Canada and Peru. Uh, Canada, no, and Uruguay. Uruguay, yeah. pardon me. Those are the two countries. Yeah. Every, when I ask that question, everybody says the Netherlands, so Holland, right? No, but no. Holland, no. they have not. No. no, it's Canada and Uruguay are the two countries who, who have legalized um, uh, cannabis completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, 11 states have done that now. So you can see that gradually happening there, tipping point occurring there. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the jurisdictions that are on the vanguard would include Canada, for sure. Um, states who've been doing it for a long time, like Colorado and California. California mm-hmm. was the first to do the medical cannabis. But these are states that have, um, um, they have, there's no questions that they, that you can ask that they haven't heard. There's no mm-hmm. problems you can face that they haven't seen, including Canada. And this is why, uh, Canadians, we are often called upon to help with countries who are trying to do it uh, right. In fact, The Economist magazine said that don't ever think of legalizing cannabis without discussing with Canada first, you know, because they know they, they've had the experience. We've gone through many iterations of many iterations of how to uh, use cannabis in this country uh, medically and, uh, and, and recreationally. And uh, so, yeah, we have sort of tripped over ourselves and we're getting there bit by bit. One of the things I want to get back to that you referred to is Corey and I have interviewed a number of people, and we did one a a couple of months ago about um, a woman who helped her (laughs) in-laws with, uh, what was it, brain cancer? Was it brain cancer? I'm not sure. I don't recall. Uh, And and remember the father had... The father uh, had something. Skin cancer. Yeah, the whole family was kind of involved. One of the things I noticed is that the elderly... Mm-hmm. are more opposed to the legalization of cannabis strictly because they had uh, gone through a longer period of demonization of the plant. And But once they try it, mm-hmm. they are absolutely amazed by it and become strong advocates for it. Do you notice that as well? And the reason is, very, is interesting because we develop our endocannabinoid system at the 13-week period in utero. So as we're a fetus 13 weeks of age, we begin to develop our ECS. As we're born and go through childhood, we continue to develop. <clears throat> As we go through adolescence, there's a rapid increase in development. So we're like this with our ECS, and then eventually we just rock it up in adolescence. But then as we get older, like everything else, we begin to get a diminishing of our endocannabinoid system. We get less and less and less of the ligands, the receptors, the enzymes, all the things necessary as part of the ECS. We have less of it. 
And you begin to see symptoms of age as a result of symptoms of a diminishing endocannabinoid system. So you see problems with sleeping and, and, and weight and agitation and pain and tremors and uh, all the things that you see. So studies have shown, <clears throat> excuse me, in Israel that in nursing homes, the introduction of cannabis has been actually really quite remarkable in these nursing homes at, uh, prevent, uh, at helping with patients who are on polypharmacy to, to reduce their medication loads, you know, to be able to eat better, sleep better, be happier, less tremors, less pill burden, less burden on, on the staff, less burden on family. So yes, people begin to, as you restore part of your natural endocannabinoid system by mm -hmm. using phytocannabinoids, plant cannabinoids, you in fact are restoring some of the things that we lose with time and age. And we lose a lot of things with time and age that we don't want to, whether it's everything from memory or, or just black hair. You know, we, we, we wish we could have some of those things back. So some of us, but I'm, but I'm saying, um, hair period. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for some, but that being said is that, so yeah, that demographic, the, um, older demographic who's, who are beginning to have a diminishing of their ECS, really can see and feel i hear all the time all the time uh, from people like that you know what i couldn't believe it. i take one inhalation i sleep so great uh, or something like that you know you hear this constantly in fact i would say some of the more profound stories i've heard are from the senior population over years yeah for sure are you senior Corey? no I'm not even going to answer that. I'm feeling like a senior because I just got back from Prague and yeah. I'm a little jet lagged. She's but a senorita. A senorita. Exactly. Thank That's you, right. Dave. Not a Dave, have you ever thought of writing a book? <laughs> no, seriously, because you explain it in layman's terms so so well. Yeah. That and, and one of the problems I find is that you know people post a lot of information about scientific studies. Right. And you get through the first couple of paragraphs and you think, oh my God, what the hell does this mean? Yeah, it's all cure for insomnia at that point because yeah. it puts you to sleep. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, some of these are pedant. No, they're difficult to, to interpret. And I, I, that's what I enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I speak internationally, I actually try to make it palatable, know your audience, understand if it's a scientific audience, you can be more scientific. Yeah. If it's a, if it's a more general lay audience, then uh, absolutely you have to sort of make it, I call it medutainment. Uh, so it's mm -hmm. medical education, but it's also entertaining, upbeat, upbeat and fun and understandable and the whole bit. And so that's what I do in speaking. My fear in writing a book is that by the minute I, I finish it, it'll be obsolete because there's been that sort of a dramatic increase. But you know, you mentioned the research, some of the interesting research is that is happening globally here. And so what I thought I'd, I would do, and, and this is what I do. Sure. I research the research. Uh, I spend my days uh, researching the research and seeing what is in fact uh, clinical, what is interesting. And I thought I'd just share with you some of the more interesting things of, of late, just to share with the audience so that you can understand that bring some pearls home. Here's some, just some pearls. Um, uh, for example, um, CBD, the question I get asked is, should we be taking it on an empty stomach or with a high fat meal? And uh, I call CBD cheese, bacon, donuts, meaning that you need CBD, you need the high fat meal. You actually increase your serum levels uh, by over four times by taking it with a high fat meal. Interesting. Yeah. So that's just that's wow. just one thing here. Um, uh, which is stronger, vaping or smoking? 
well, we're not advocates, of course, of smoking at all because of combustion and, and inhalation of all those things. So, but it turns out that vaping is, in fact, more powerful anyway um, when it comes to being able to get the same amount of cannabis. Now, this is actually quite remarkable. There's, there's a study out of Montefiore University in New York, but it's funded by the Department of Defense for the United States government on autism and cannabis. Uh, they found there's quite a few families in the armed forces with children with autism, so they're trying to do this. And yes, there's actually this uh, remarkable uh, study that they're using cannabinoids, uh, CBDV, uh, mm. for the use of autism in a research study in, out of New York State. So again, what's remarkable about that is the fact that it has been uh, uh, funded by the Department of National Defense uh, in, in the States. So that's, that's quite a remarkable thing. And, and of course, they're going after some of the more um, significant parameters of autism, the, self, the self-harm and, and uh, behavior, modif- the behavior attitudes and things. But they're even being able to develop now even a better dose uh, so for autism, now they're, they're getting down to the point they realize that there's this should be this ratio of about 1 to 20 THC to CBD and how many milligrams per kilos of a, of a child should they be using it. So I think autism is the next seizures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know how seizure medication, I mean, cannabis and seizures is, is very, very evident, the benefits there. I think you'll see autism possibly as that, as that next one. Um, here's a headline. Cannabis use reduces premature death. And, of course, that's a feather in anybody's, any product's cap, of course. But cannabis use is associated with decreased rates of things that kill us, including obesity, diabetes, mortality from traumatic brain injury, use of alcohol and prescription drugs, driving fatalities, and opiate overdose. So that people Mm -hmm. who take cannabis are actually uh, suggest that cannabis use may decrease premature death. I believe that, yeah. Not a bad thing to have in your cap here. Um, cannabis, this was also remarkable. Cannabis was better than narcotics in treating fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. You know, fibromyalgia, which plagues many people and is quite yeah. a pain and is considered to likely to be one of the leading endocannabinoid deficiency syndromes. So the result of our, our system not working properly, there are postulated several conditions where they are a result of the fact that there's a, there's a, a flaw in our ECS and fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, some migraines, dysmenorrhea. There's a few that are that fit into that category, Tourette's. In fact, interestingly enough, the world expert on Tourette's out of Germany, she uh, gave a talk that was remarkable where she said, and this is an actual quote, Tourette's syndrome is an endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Huge. And, of course, this is what we use cannabis for is to try to harness deficits in the ECS. Mm-hmm. So uh, Kristen Mueller-Vall is her name, and uh, she made that statement and has and then brought rolled out some studies to show how it has made a difference and is better than the current standard of care for, for this condition. Uh, CBD increases the anti-cancer effects of chemotherapy against pancreatic cancers. Yes. Now, they don't punt. You know, th- these researchers don't pick on little, little uh, benign basal cell cancers of the skin. They go after the glioblastomas in the brain and pancreatic cancers and breast cancers and the major killers. When I say they go after them, they seem to be playing quite a role a- a- in the research. They really are tackling these very difficult and scary cancers. Yeah. Some cancers are obviously scarier than others. And um, the role of CBD, not just what it can do at the cellular level, 
But actually, I know of three different medications now that cannabis potentiates the effect of. So we know, we've known for a while that temozolomide, which is a common uh, medication used for brain, brain tumor, tumors, yes. that the, it is potentiated and made better and made available for temo-resistant patients, temozolomide-resistant patients, with the concurrent use of cannabinoids. Mm-hmm. And we now see this with pancreatic cancer. So with, again, the, one of the common uh, medications used there. Uh, here's a, a fun one. Is it singing and running elevates your endocannabinoids and boosts your mood? So, <laughs> oh, right. I'm just off for a jog. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> singing, but singing actually in a choir, believe it or not, it turns out to be the best. They've done some research and find, well, what are the things that elevate your natural endocannabinoids? And it turns out that things like singing, things like uh, nutmeg, there's certain mm-hmm. things you can do. CBD will actually elevate your natural AEA, uh, anandamide. Well, when you talk about running, there's the runner's high. Yeah, yeah. And that's... Used to be thought, we, we grew up thinking it was in, it was endorphins and enkephalins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now it's, it's well recognized to be anandamide. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Eh? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So it's not an opiate thing like, like endorphins and enkephalins. It's a natural cannabinoid thing which makes you feel high, which the opiate things don't anyway. So, and the other thing that's been really remarkable is, is the discovery of these orphaned receptor, receptors that our body has. We have many, many receptors that don't really know what they do. But more and more, they're discovering the fact that these recept, many of the orphaned receptors are, in fact, interacting with the endocannabinoid system and interact with things like CBD and THC. So, the, the whole class of receptors known as GPR, I think you're going to hear, you know, you've got CB1 and CB2, the two big receptors. Mm-hmm. But I think the CB3 receptor is going to probably end up being, I used to think it was going to be a trip V1 receptor, but I think it's going to be a GPR55 type of receptor. So what I'm saying is that there, there are these many receptors in the body that are now being shown to be more affected by cannabinoids than was previously thought. And that's mm-hmm. a good thing. That's a good thing. Dave, if you were getting into medicine today, mm-hmm. would you be more apt to lean towards cannabis based on what you know or would you continue along the current path that a lot of doctors follow? Oh, I would definitely introduce it into, into my regimen. I mean, it's, again, it's not a cure-all. It's, it's not always the best st- standard of care. For example, it works for glaucoma, but there are better things for glaucoma. So, in other words, there are certain conditions where you would like to be able to know that you can also introduce something that is going to be, again, cannabis has got a massive safety profile. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very it's a very harsh statement to say that cannabis kills nobody. That's a very dangerous statement to make. But it doesn't. It doesn't. There are just no receptors in the brainstem. There are, uh, you know, they've tried to find the lethal dose, and the only way they can kill monkeys with it is by basically unloading all the cannabis off the truck and crushing them. Yeah. Because, as the joke goes, I mean, because there's no way that they can actually find lethal doses of this. So when you look at medicine, you say about medicines, you look at four things. You look at cost, efficacy, safety, and tolerability. And when it comes to the safety profile, nothing holds a, a candle to, to the cannabinoids, mm-hmm. particularly when you're comparing it for things like opiates mm-hmm. and benzodiazepines, sleeping pills, and antidepressants, and other things necessarily, um, which may or may not uh, cause more damage. Yeah, well, Dr. Bob Melamides told Corey the story of a f- friend of his who took 40 grams at once. Actually, he just told that story uh, in Prague. I just got back from Canifest uh, two days ago. Well, not even two days ago. And uh, he told that story on, on the panel. I actually think it was 50, but 50. we'll go with 40. 50. Yeah. Oh, he took okay. all at one time. 
lovely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he's fine. Yeah, he yeah. had an ailment. What do you have? Kaposi sarcoma. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you're you know you're right. I mean, again, this it's they're trying to find the lethal dose and the LD50s and they can't find them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, so I wouldn't. Uh, again, the safety profile is massive, and as such, if I were starting a medicine today, I would really want this in my. Um, in my black bag as an option for using in many in many scenarios sometimes as an adjuvant as, as something that you can add on to other treatments and something as sometimes as first-line therapy dave it's a pleasure to talk to you again we're gonna to have to have you back uh, do you have a website that people can get a hold of you or uh no not really well, he um, doesn't want to be found you don't want busy. to be found <laughs> no I, I i probably do i think i have a website that was was for me there i mean you can certainly find me but um, the website, I, and I, I will strongly advocate this, is, uh, is planaglobal.com, I think it is. Mm-hmm. I am not uh, part of the company, but I do advise to the company, and I'm going to tell you that I think that they, they can always reach me through there as well, okay. um, through that company. It is, um, it is I think, the, um, yeah, people want information nowadays. They want to find yep. out and, stuff, and, and do things. I, I can also be found through speakers bureaus, like the National Speakers Bureau or Keynote Speakers Canada, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Great. Good to talk to you again. Thanks very much. You too, both of you. Thanks, Thanks Dave. Dr. Dave Hepburn. And that's another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to Cannabis Health Radio. For more information and to search previous podcasts, visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This podcast is made possible by donations from our listeners. If you found the information helpful, please consider making a donation in any amount through our website. You can also help us share our message by leaving a review on your podcast listening platform. We are very grateful for your support. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.